Welcome and thank you for listening to this podcast from core to ad Independent Medical Education. In this episode, you will hear from our experts, Dr. Rena Callahan and Dr. Shahina Dahoud, as they will discuss oral certs, a novel therapy for ER-positive, HER2-negative, advanced or metastatic breast cancer. The experts take a close look at the Emerald trial, discuss the treatment landscape and future prospects for oral certs. This podcast is an initiative of core to ad and developed by Breast Cancer Connect, which is a group of international experts working in the field of breast cancer. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Mannerini Stemline Oncology. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts, and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Breast Cancer Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Courtuet website. Now, with that being said, let's get starting. Hello all, I am Dr. Rena Callahan, an Associate Clinical Professor of Hematology Oncology at the University of California, Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Shahina Dawood, a consultant medical oncologist and professor of oncology at MediClinic City Hospital, United Arab Emirates, Dubai. Thank you, Dr. Callahan. It's truly a pleasure to be here today. First of all, I'd like to invite the audience to follow us in this exciting new series made up of at least three episodes discussing a new topic on new oral endocrine therapy options for patients with ER-positive, HER2-negative, advanced, or metastatic breast cancer. Now, with the first podcast that we're going to be doing today, we will be discussing the efficacy and safety profiles of oral SIRS and truly understanding their place in the evolving treatment landscape. I really look forward to this discussion with you, Dr. Dawood, because we're going to talk about a very exciting new therapy. We've known for years that endocrine therapy represents the backbone of treatment for estrogen receptor positive breast cancers. However, there hasn't been a new endocrine agent for 20 years. So SIRDs have been instrumental in managing breast cancer that has progressed on an aromatase inhibitor. However, so far, had only been available as an intramuscular injection with limited bioavailability. Oral SIRDs now have improved upon both efficacy and delivery and are ready to be integrated into our clinical practices. Therefore, we need to review the data on approved and potentially soon-to-be-approved oral SIRDs so our patients can immediately start benefiting from this important advance in therapy. What are your thoughts, Dr. Dawood? I absolutely agree. And if I may add, it is also true that over the last few decades, we have learned several important lessons in the management of patients with ER-positive, HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer, including the fact that first-line endocrine therapy is equivalent to chemotherapy in the absence of visceral crisis. Second, we know that sequential endocrine therapy is now the standard of care for these patients. And third, we know that combination endocrine therapy with a CDK4-6 inhibitor in that first-line setting improves both progression-free survival as well as overall survival beyond using endocrine as a monotherapeutic agent. Now, what do we do beyond progression in an endocrine-resistant cohort has been the focus of recent research, with oral surds representing a new class of drugs 
that could potentially be used in the subgroup of patients with endocrine-resistant disease who have an ESR1 mutation. Absolutely, Dr. Doe. This is a very exciting time. In fact, January 2023 marked the beginning of the oral SIRDS era, with elicestrin being the first to be FDA-approved and expected to be EMA-approved later this year. This approval was based on pivotal data from the Emerald Phase Three trial, which enrolled men in postmenopausal women with estrogen receptor-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer who had previously received endocrine therapy, including fulvestrin. Results from this trial demonstrated significant improvements of progression-free survival in patients with ER-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer who were treated with elicestrant versus standard-of-care endocrine therapy in the second- and third-line settings, especially in patients with ESR1 mutations. One key feature of the Emerald trial is that all patients had to be pre-treated with CDK4-6 inhibitor. What do you think is the clinical consequence of having this requirement for CDK4-6 inhibitor pre-treatment as an inclusion criteria? Great question, Dr. Callahan. I think, as I've previously mentioned, endocrine therapy in combination with CDK4-6 inhibitor has completely revolutionized the current treatment landscapes of these patients with ER-positive, HER2-negative, advanced, or metastatic breast cancer, so much so that it's now become the standard of care to give combination endocrine therapy with a CDK4-6 inhibitor in that first-line setting, or even in subsequent settings. So I think having it as an inclusion criteria was paramount to making it uh, applicable in our clinical setting in terms of using that oral CERT. As the Emerald trial included a real-world experience, it makes sense to require CDK4-6 inhibitor use as an eligibility for a study that's in fact trying to address how a second-line therapy performs, and that's exactly what it did especially because we now know that most tumors eventually will become resistant to endocrine therapy, often due to the development of an ESR1 mutation. So do you think that subgroup analysis on CDK4-6 inhibitor pretreated patients can elucidate not only how CDK inhibitor exposure impacts treatment sequencing decision, but more specifically, if the duration of exposure affects sequential treatment efficacy? So I certainly think that CDK4-6 inhibitor duration of therapy and exposure will influence to a certain extent. I'm not sure if the duration in isolation impacts sequencing decisions. I think sequencing decisions are dependent on multiple factors, including duration of prior exposure of CDK4-6 inhibitors, including factors such as tumor burden, performance status, and other targets that can help guide that therapeutic management of those patients with ER-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. It's truly a complex interplay of multiple factors. It is the art of individualizing therapy, which is what we want to do for our patients at the end of the day. But that being said, I do think that CDK4-6 inhibitor duration of exposure impacts the efficacy of oral SIRS. And we've certainly seen that in the subgroup analysis of the phase three emerald trial data. A landmark analysis compared progression-free survival results in the group of patients who were taking elicestrins versus the group of patients who were taking standard of care therapy based on the duration of prior exposure to CDK4-6 inhibitor. And essentially, 
What the authors showed was that a longer prior duration of CDK4-6 inhibitor was positively associated with a longer progression-free survival in patients who were treated with elicestrant, but not with standard of care. And, and a question that I would now like to pose to you, Dr. Callahan, is how early or late should we be using elicestrant post-CDK4-6 inhibitor, which is currently the multi-million dollar question that we're all asking as community oncologists? Right. I mean, that's a great question because we know exactly what to do in first-line treatment. We all use endocrine therapy and CDK inhibitor where it gets a little murky is what to do in second line. A lot of these patients have had a significant period of time where they've had an excellent quality of life with a tolerable therapy. And we want to keep that going as long as possible. So I think it makes the most sense to use it as soon as possible after CDK inhibitor therapy. So we're talking second line. So if a patient had CDK inhibitor and aromatase inhibitor first line, I'd feel more than comfortable using elicestrant in the second line, of course, taking into consideration patient and tumor-specific features. So let me pose another question to you, Dr. Callahan. What about the ESR1 mutation cohort that was included in the study? As you know, about 40% of these patients did have an ESR1 mutation in that phase 3 emerald study. How does it affect elicestrant efficacy in this particular patient cohort? The emerald trial included patients with and without an ESR1 mutation. But if we look at the same data in patients who harbor an ESR1 mutation, we see even more marked improvements in progression-free survival. Patients with an ESR1 mutation had a median progression-free survival around 3.8 months, whereas patients on standard of care endocrine therapy closer to two months. And then looking at landmark analyses by duration of CDK inhibitor therapy, we see that patients who were on CDK inhibitors for longer periods of time had greater improvements in landmark progression-free survival. So for example, patients who had previously been on at least 12 months of a CDK inhibitor had a tripling of progression-free survival with the use of elicestrant versus standard of care endocrine therapy, a marked improvement. So I think that that is one of the reasons why the FDA approval was at this time restricted to patients who have an ESR1 mutation. So when do you think is the best time to test for an ESR1 mutation in the advanced and metastatic settings? And how should we go about doing this? Excellent question, Dr. Callahan. I think another question that we've all been asking ourselves since the data for the Emerald trial came out and the approval by the FDA in January restricting it to use only in patients with an ESR1 mutation. It is clear that uh, ESR1 mutation is now an established biomarker for the treatment of patients with an ER-positive HER2-negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer. But I think it's important to remind ourselves and, and the audience out there, that upfront testing prior to therapy with an aromatase inhibitor in that metastatic setting is unlikely to pick up an ESR1 mutation. In fact, only approximately 1% of patients who are endocrine therapy naive, such as those stage 4 de novo patients with metastatic breast cancer, actually have a detectable ESR1 mutation. On the other hand, 
almost 40% of patients following prior exposure to an aromatase inhibitor in that metastatic setting will develop an ESR1 mutation. So it becomes important to at least test again after, say, first-line therapy or even at other time points when you feel that the patient may have an acquired uh, an ESR1 mutation post-progression on an aromatase inhibitor. In regards to how uh, we test, generally, we use a liquid biopsy platform that is recommended for the detection of an ESR1 mutation. More specifically, the NCCN guidelines recommend an NGS or a, or a droplet PCR uh, platform. However, in the U.S., the FDA has specifically approved the GARDEN360 companion diagnostic assay to identify patients eligible for elicestrin treatment. Now, we've discussed elicestrin efficacy. We've analyzed subgroup data for both the CDK46 pretreated patients and the ones that have been harboring an ESR1 mutation. My question to you, Dr. Callahan, is do you think that the safety of elicestrin is as optimal as its efficacy? Because that will be important for patient quality of life at the end of the day. Thanks so much for that question, uh, Shaheen. I completely agree with you that safety is very, very important, especially when we're talking about second line. As I mentioned earlier, we want to keep that quality of life going as long as possible so patients can live very full lives, uh, jobs, family, doing what they want to do. And I found, so there's the data that we'll review from Emerald, as well as my personal experience, that it is very, very tolerable and safe. So if we look at the data from Emerald, 27% of patients receiving Elicestrin experienced grade three or four adverse events compared with about 21% receiving standard of care therapy. Most common high-grade AEs included nausea, back pain, increased ALT, but this was only in about 2% of patients. And, you know, we compare this to nausea, fatigue, diarrhea, increased AST, and the standard of care arm occurring in about 1% of patients. So very comparable. Additionally, I think it's important to look at do patients discontinue treatment due to adverse events? And this was pretty uncommon. In the Elicestrin arm, only 6% of patients discontinued therapy due to AE compared with 4.4% in the standard of care arm. So very tolerable. So based on this data, where do you think, Dr. Dawood, Elicestrin fits into the current treatment landscape for estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative, advanced in metastatic breast cancer? I think, you know, again, a multi-million dollar question where we're trying to individualize those sequencing strategies because there's been such an explosion of data and biomarkers that are helping us guide therapeutic management in this specific cohort of patients. But to specifically try and answer the question that you're asking, I think it would be a cohort of patients with an ESR1 mutation positive disease, which occurs in about 40%, like I mentioned previously. How soon or late this develops will obviously impact how early or late I will use uh, elicestrins. Sequencing strategies in the ESR1 mutation cohort where there are no other biomarkers present will make me want to use elicestrin as early as possible, probably straight after a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus that aromatase inhibitor. And if there's an ESR1 mutation cohort 
of patients where I'm trying to sequence, but there are other biomarkers that are, are present, like a PIX3CA mutation or a HER2 pathogenic mutation, or even some of those agnostic markers like NTRK fusions, that will be a little bit more complex. But the earlier you use the alicestrin, I think the more efficacy you're going to be able to gain from, from using that drug. Now, a question that I know no one has addressed and something that stares at us in the face daily when we're looking at that data for the Emerald study is that although alicestrin has been approved in the ESR1 mutation cohort, when we look at Emerald data, it looks to be equivalent to fulvestrin in the ESR wild type cohort. And it's also more easy to use because it's an oral tablet compared to an intramuscular injection that we need to use with fulvestrin. So would you consider using alicestrin in that ESR wild type uh, patient? Administration is certainly going to be easier. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I wish that the FDA approval were more broad because, you know, alicestrin, while the efficacy is most pronounced in the ESR1 mutated population. It doesn't perform less well in patients without ESR1 mutations, and it offers some advantages. Most patients don't want two intramuscular injections once a month. Some live very far from the clinic and prefer an oral therapy. So I would use it if available. And also exciting are upcoming combination data. There are ongoing studies looking at combinations of oral surge. So with Elicestrant, we have the Elevate trials, which have combinations of Elicestrant with different CDK inhibitors, Everolimus, Alpelisib. So we'll know if they can be safely combined and if this improves efficacy to give us some more second, third line options. There are other oral surds in development, camisestrant, imlunestrant. However, right now, we don't have any phase three data. And right now, we cannot compare different oral surds because they have different patient populations. But in general, my feeling is that it's always good to have multiple options. So let me make the question more difficult for you, uh, Dr. Callahan, because Sequencing, I've just, I've just touched on that topic about sequencing, but sequencing is going to be all the more difficult now with the introduction of the first oral surd in the form of alicestrin in those patients with an ESR1 mutation. So how would you optimally sequence your patient if there are other biomarkers available for that patient? For example, the presence of a PIX3CA mutation or a BRCA mutation or HER2 pathogenic mutation. How would you optimally sequence if that patient has an ESR1 mutation? Where would you place alicestrin in that sequencing pathway? That's a great question. And you know, we don't have a whole lot of information yet on the impact of those mutations on patients who are given single-agent alicestrin. We do have FDA-approved therapies for patients who have PIK3CA mutations or germline BRCA mutations, not yet with HER2 mutations. And so we do have options to use those therapies, but we need more data to help us sequence these agents and especially the combination data that I referred to previously. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Callahan. We're now at the end of the podcast and I think I've had a lot of fun discussing uh, the new oral third, Alicestrin. We've discussed 
efficacy. We've discussed safety profile of this new oral CERD. And we've tried, we really have tried to see where we can place it in that sequencing strategy amongst patients with an ESR1 mutation, ER positive, HER2 negative, advanced or metastatic breast cancer, with or without other biomarkers being present. But you've heard that it's not as simple. And I think the art of oncology now is personalized therapy. And that's where you discuss your cases in the MDT. But just to give you uh, some clinical takeaways, and I think these are very important messages that I think I've taken back from this podcast, the first episode, is number one, in January 2023, LSS was the first and currently the only oral cert to be FDA approved with optimal efficacy and manageable safety of for patients with an ESR1 mutated ER positive, HER2 negative, advanced or metastatic breast cancer. We know that elicestrin has a longer progression-free survival result and are positively associated with longer duration of prior CDK4-6 therapy and are even more pronounced in patients with an ESR1 mutation. We have heard that data. ESR1 mutation testing should be done with a liquid biopsy platform at the time of progression on aromatase inhibitor as well as after subsequent lines of progression if you have not detected an ESR1 mutation earlier on. Oral CERDs are being studied in combination with targeted therapies like CDK4-6 inhibitors, PIK3CA inhibitors, as well as AKT inhibitors. And I personally am looking forward to seeing a number of different oral CERDs making its way into the clinic, which is just going to open up doors and opportunities for our patients to be able to treat them more optimally in the future. Dr. DeWood, I've had a lot of fun today discussing elicestrin and oral surds and participating in this podcast and can't wait to do it again. And of course, a big thank you to everyone in our audience. We are all in this together, right? I invite you to listen to our next podcast where we'll have an exciting opportunity to apply what we've discussed today on two different patient case studies. So follow along to learn more about that. Yes, definitely. Thank you all for joining us today. It's been a huge pleasure discussing with you, Dr. Callahan, and see you next time. We hope you found this podcast informative and enjoyable. If you like this episode, you should look on the Port to Add channel for more. In particular, look out for the next two podcasts with Dr. Callahan and Dr. Dahu, where they will present patient case studies with ER positive, HER2 negative, advanced or metastatic breast cancer and discuss treatment options, including oral certs, sequencing decisions and adverse event management. Make sure to listen to those episodes too. Also, don't forget to rate this episode on the core to ed website and share our podcast on social media or maybe with your colleagues. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Court2Ad Independent Medical Education. Please visit court2ad.com for more information.